Thanks for watching NTD Business. Coming up. The legal battle between Twitter and Elon Musk is heating up. Twitter lawyers will soon get their chance to question the world's richest man. Automaker Ford's stock suffers its worst day in over a decade today. That's as supply chain issues are set to take a big bite out of its profit. Is China becoming the world's loan shark? A Treasury official takes aim at China's loan practices to poor countries. We have that and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here. Elon Musk will have to answer questions from Twitter's lawyers under oath next week. It's in preparation for a full trial, which will happen in the near future. Musk wants to walk away from the $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. A filing today says the deposition is scheduled for next Monday and Tuesday. It may even stretch into Wednesday if needed. Musk is trying to get out of the deal. Twitter, though, is trying to force him to follow through with it. Both sides have accused the other of breaking the April takeover agreement. Now they're set to start a five-day trial in about a month. And shares of automaker Ford fell 12% today after the company said supply chain issues could cost it an extra billion dollars this quarter. Ford says it'll end the month with between 40,000 and 45,000 large pickups and SUVs it simply can't finish. That's because it doesn't have all the parts. Besides the parts shortage, it's also paying higher prices for the supplies it can get. It's not just Ford. Automakers in general have been struggling with supply chain issues, specifically a shortage of computer chips. That's choked off vehicle production for much of the past two years. Ford did say it should still be able to hit its full-year earnings targets because it expects those unfinished vehicles to be finished in the fourth quarter instead, which will add to its sales revenue then. Sorry faces down at Wall Street again today. Markets closed lower. The Dow fell 313 points, 1%. S&P dropped 44 points, 1 in one-tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq lost 110 points, around 1% as well. But if you're house hunting, here's a bit of good news. About a quarter of builders say they've reduced home prices this month. And you also have more options too. New construction is up. The housing market, though, still volatile. Builder sentiment, the way they feel about the market and how homes are selling, dropped. Part of it's because of the cost of building supplies, along with higher mortgage rates, which are putting pressure on home purchases, putting them out of the reach for a lot of people. Rates were above 6% last week. That's the highest level since 2008. And New York City is ending its vaccine mandate for private employers this fall. Mayor Eric Adams made the announcement today. We will also provide additional flexibility to business by lifting the private sector mandate on November 1st. Uh, this put the choice in the hands of New York businesses. It is imperative that we're asking them to continue to encourage their employees to get their vaccines and booster shots. The city made private businesses ban unvaccinated employees from the workplace just last December. The mandate applied to over 180,000 businesses. As for public sector workers, the mayor says they'll still have to show proof of vaccination, at least for now. That's for municipal workers like police officers, firefighters and teachers. Meanwhile, the city is still in the process of firing hundreds of employees who refuse the shots.
And the FDA has a warning for people, and one the agency probably didn't expect to make. Don't cook chicken in NyQuil. Yeah, don't cook chicken in NyQuil. Seems pretty obvious, quite frankly, not a tasty option either. But a new social media challenge is encouraging young people to cook their poultry in NyQuil and other over-the-counter cough products. This one is dangerous even if you don't eat the chicken. It's because the FDA says boiling medication can make it more concentrated and just breathing it in can damage your lungs. And an unusual help wanted sign. Official data from China shows the country is looking to hire over 3 million cybersecurity personnel within five years. But why exactly does Beijing need them? Here's a look. According to the latest data from the Ministry of Education, by 2027, China will have a shortage of over 3 million cybersecurity personnel. That's despite a nationwide yield of 30,000 cybersecurity graduates every year. Epoch Times columnist Wang He says the Chinese Communist regime needs an army of cybersecurity workers to steal cutting-edge technology from the West. The Chinese Communist Party uses them as a strategic force. Internally, they are used to ensure their corporate network security. And externally, they are used to carry out cyber attacks, steal intelligence, etc. Back in July 2021, the U.S., EU and U.K. jointly condemned the Chinese Communist Party for the first time. That's for conducting worldwide cyber attacks. The same day, the U.S. Department of Justice charged four Chinese nationals with participating in a hacking campaign led by the Chinese Ministry of State Security. Wang called China's cybersecurity arsenal a huge threat to the world. And is China becoming the world's loan shark? A top advisor to the U.S. Treasury Secretary warned today that Chinese loans to low- and middle-income countries could burden them with dozens of years of repayment woes. In recent years, Beijing's state-owned banks have given tens of billions of dollars in emergency loans to countries. Since 2017, Beijing has lent a total of $32.8 billion to Sri Lanka, Pakistan and Argentina. According to Aid Data, it's a research lab at the College of William and Mary. It focuses on China's global financing activities. Aid Data's executive director says that China has pivoted from lending for infrastructure projects like ports and bridges to emergency rescue lending. Other countries receiving rescue lending from China included Kenya, Venezuela, Ecuador, Belarus, Egypt, Mongolia, and Ukraine. In fact, about 60% of China's overseas lending is to countries that are in debt distress. It's according to researchers at the World Bank. So again, is China becoming the world's, world's loan shark? U.S. Treasury official Brent Neiman said today that China became the world's largest creditor in 2017. That means the world owes more money to China than it does to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund combined. China has vastly expanded its portfolio of loans and trade credits, and it's now by far the largest bilateral official creditor in the world. A Boston University research paper says China is becoming an alternative to the Washington, D.C. headquartered International Monetary Fund. It says Chinese lending has led some countries to turn away from the IMF. And one of the major concerns for countries going to China for loans 
is that when you borrow from Beijing, the terms and conditions of these loans are often not transparent. One study found that all contracts with Chinese state-owned entities after 2014 contained strong confidentiality clauses, and these clauses often prevent the borrower from revealing the terms and conditions of the loan. Chinese loan contracts often contain non-disclosure agreements. As a result, liabilities to China are systematically excluded from multilateral surveillance or restructuring efforts. And often debt-distressed countries aren't able to pay them back. Over 40 countries each owe debt to China, equivalent to more than 10% of their GDP. That's a big slice of their total economy. Even so, the countries have to repay the debt to China one way or another. Beijing could just take your natural resources, oil or minerals as repayment. Could also take repayment in the form of political cooperation or in geopolitical favors. For example, having countries shift diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. The CCP wants control of the self-governing island. Chinese loan contracts also commonly feature novel clauses that allow Chinese lenders to cancel loans and demand immediate repayment in a wide variety of circumstances. This is a key difference between Chinese loans and IMF loans. The IMF won't demand alternative payments. So why would countries choose China over the IMF? Well, research findings show that the IMF has created discontent among some developing countries by imposing Western-style policy preferences. A former senior IMF economist says the IMF demands sometimes painful reforms to the countries receiving the loans. So that means governments are forced to weigh up the pros and cons of doing business with either the Chinese Communist Party or the IMF. But World Bank researchers predict that China's overseas lending and debt relief are set to decline as Chinese lenders face pressure at home due to a weakening economy. We'll keep you updated. And back in the States, BlackRock is expanding its controversial investing with its recent purchase of the Solar Zero Virtual Power Plant. Critics ask whether BlackRock is fulfilling its duties to investors with its environmental, social and governance style of investing. Anthony Shaw Marshall reports. U.S. investment giant BlackRock will buy New Zealand rooftop solar company Solar Zero for $60 million as part of its clean energy push. Asked Will Hilt, executive director of Consumers Research, if BlackRock is breaching its fiduciary duty to generate returns and profits for shareholders when it engages in activism, including climate change initiatives, which may not bear the best return. So anyone with money invested in with BlackRock, whether they are in a ESG-labeled or sustainable-labeled fund or not, their money is being used to push these priorities. And they should consider, uh, if they do have their money with BlackRock, whether this is something that they want their money used to do. This summer, West Virginia banned BlackRock from state banking contracts. It was on the grounds that the Wall Street firm boycotts fossil fuel companies. I asked Hild if BlackRock's strategies undermine American interests. They don't apply the same levels of ESG standards to any of the companies that they invest in in China. And so the net effect of this is that they hamper U.S. corporate competitors internationally, and they help, they're helping to build up and, and prop up the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the, and the Chinese economy at a time when relations between us and, and them are, are getting worse and worse. BlackRock's hard push into clean energy investments comes after the company recorded a $1.7 trillion loss in the first half of 2022. So what's the main reason behind BlackRock's push for global renewable power? 
BlackRock's website says it predicts a $10 trillion investment opportunity in the world going from two-thirds fossil fuels to two-thirds renewables by 2050. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And staying on the debate between fossil fuels and renewable energy, we're on to the European energy crisis. The environment, it looks like, can step aside. Now is the time for coal in Europe. Despite the EU's renewable energy goals, its desperate need for power is forcing it to embrace the world's most polluting energy source, coal, and seems to be willing to pay whatever it takes to get more of it, even twice as much as what Asian buyers will spend. Europe's coal imports from South Africa were nine times higher in the first half of this year in comparison to last year. Europe's combined coal purchases from South Africa, Australia and Indonesia rose by 1,000% just four months after the invasion of Ukraine. An example of Europe's demand for coal is Tanzania, a country in Southeast Africa. Normally it exports its coal only to neighboring countries, all in Africa. The idea of sending it anywhere else was unthinkable. They'd have to truck the heavy fossil fuel for almost 400 miles to get it to the ocean port and then ship it all the way to Europe. But now, it sent 13 ships filled with coal to Europe already this year. Latest one had a capacity of 38,000 tons, even heavier than the Statue of Liberty. That much coal could power nearly 9,000 homes for a year. Many more shipments are being demanded. Tanzania is even considering building a railway longer than the Grand Canyon to connect some of its coal mines to its ports. And coal mining companies having a great time. Their profit margins have more than tripled since 2020, according to an energy consultancy firm. But the increasing import of coal is throwing a wrench into the EU's renewable energy agenda. Since coal is by far the dirtiest form of energy, it creates a lot of air pollution and is responsible for far more deaths than any other energy source. But despite that, a significant proportion of Europe's power still comes from coal. So where is Europe getting its coal? It used to get a massive proportion from Russia, but just earlier this year, it banned Russian coal imports. So who is Russia selling its coal to now? China. China's coal imports from Russia have hit a five-year high. They only started recording the data for the past five years. For all we know, it could be an all-time high. China is already one of the world's top importers of coal. It even had to get more from Russia during a summer heat wave. The two countries have stated their friendship had no limits recently, and China has said that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, quote, understandable. However, Russia still struggling. Russia's coal transporting ships are, for the most part, insured by the EU, UK, and Swiss companies, and all of them have followed the trend of refusing to do business at all things Russian. As a result, Russia's seaborne coal deliveries have dropped to the lowest level in four months. Okay, for China, its coal imports from Russia are delivered mostly by train, but there are limits to how much you can deliver by train. So any meaningful increase in exports would have to happen by sea on uninsured ships, limiting Russia's export capacity severely. It's still to come. Stay with us. The top executive at a vegan food company charged with fighting a man in a fight outside a college football game. And we have tips on how to talk to your children about money early, so they'll be smarter about it later on. With that and much more, coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. A top executive at a plant-based food company, Beyond Meat, has been arrested and charged with felony battery. It's after a fight outside a college football game. It happened on Saturday in a parking garage outside a University of Arkansas football game. According to a police report, Doug Ramsey was angered when another driver made contact with his Ford Bronco. Ramsey allegedly got out of his car, punched through the back windshield of the other driver's car. The driver told police that when he got out of his car, Ramsey started punching him. Ramsey also apparently bit the tip of the other driver's nose, according to the police report. Court appearance is scheduled for next month. So much for a meat-free diet, right? And late-night binge sessions working into the wee hours. If any of these habits seem likely to you, listen up. Night owls are more at risk for some serious health problems, apparently. A new study published Monday found that night owls are prone to type 2 diabetes and heart disease. The reason? Researchers say people who stay up late are often more sedentary, less fit, and insulin resistant. Burning the midnight oil often means sleeping in, which can lead to cardiovascular disease. Researchers want to use this study to determine if, quote, early to bed, early to rise really is healthier, or if night owls are hindered by trying to conform to society's schedule of day and night. And many parents just want their kids to be kids and avoid discussing money matters with them. But experts say the earlier parents talk about finances with their children, the smarter their kids will be with money later on. Here's the story. Every single kid, unless they start getting deprived, um, will think that their parents make millions of dollars. Tom Martin is a financial advisor with Valark Financial Services. He says parents should not give in to kids on everything they want. Jolene Godfrey wrote the book Raising Financially Fit Kids. She says parents need to teach kids financial literacy from a young age. There is one book I like called Lily's Wants and Needs, and I use that with very young kids because, of course, you're trying to help kids understand wants and needs early on. Um, Aesop's Fables always had a whole lot of stories about um, financial frugality and consequences. Call on anything that is a story that will prompt a conversation with a little one. Martin pays his kids cash for doing chores to teach them about income, saving, and spending. He says it's better to use cash to teach money management rather than digital money. When they get their money, it's important to kind of sit with them and decide how they want to allocate their money. So we have spend, we have give, and then we're going to have a saving envelope. One of the things that really catches parents off guard is the un expected birthday invitation. We're going to teach our kids to um, save some money for those birthday parties. And this is a giving envelope. Once kids start making money from part-time jobs, they can start paying for some of their own expenses. It'll help them understand financial responsibility. Invisible allowances. It's the, it's the iPhone. It is the money they charge on your account. It is you're taking care of the car and they don't have to pay much attention to it. It's all those things that make the quality of their life quite wonderful. Godfrey says it bears repeating financial advice to get the message across to kids. Nagging is just marketing 101. Repeat, 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 repeat. If you don't, social media, peers, the popular culture, 
the world is talking to your kids. Better you be doing it than some external force. It's also not too late to change financial habits, even if your kids are older or are adults. It's better late than never. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. And the biggest movie of all time is returning to theaters this Friday. It's just a few months before its sequel debuts. Let's take a look. You should see your faces. Moviegoers likely remember similar looks on their faces when Avatar first arrived back in 2009. With $2.8 billion at the global box office, Avatar is the highest grossing movie of all time, according to Box Office Mojo. James Cameron's sci-fi epic is hitting theaters again, ahead of the release of its sequel later this year. Avatar was wildly successful in 2009 upon its initial release and effectively disappeared from the pop culture zeitgeist for nearly 13 years. I see you. I see you. But it really hasn't left a cultural footprint among, say, the nerderati. Having said that, it's so wildly popular among just normal people who like entertainment and love going to the movies, that audience made that film a hit in 2009. And I predict that that audience will come back at the end of this year, in 2022, to make uh, Avatar The Way of Water another huge hit. I think people are underestimating uh, people's enthusiasm for this. lands a few months before the December debut of Avatar The Way of Water, which was originally slated for 2014. Knowing that James Cameron has been planning this for so, so long, um, having visited the actual studio um, itself, and I accidentally walked in on a session where they were going through footage. It was an accident. Um, and I, I can't say anything more than that. Uh, I believe that all the delays are just going to lead to a spectacular experience. Yeah! As the latest in the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney, can follow me on Twitter though if you're there. Oh, and if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.